many thanks for joining us for this episode of the Heart Podcast. My name is Dr. James Rudd. I'm an associate editor at Heart, and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Professor Marco Roffi from the Division of Cardiology, University Hospital, Geneva. Professor Roffi, many thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Professor, you've published, um, along with several co-authors, a very interesting Education in Heart uh, review paper on carotid artery stenting, uh, which is uh, recently published on the website. I just wondered if I could um, chat to you about the uh, about the paper, about a couple of points that I found very interesting. Sure, my pleasure. So the first one is really how best to identify patients uh, with carotid artery disease. Did you have any thoughts on that using uh, different types of imaging? Yeah, I, first of all, it's important that uh, no trial has prospectively addressed the impact of screening of carotid artery disease on outcomes uh, in those patients. So uh, before uh, thinking about screening of carotid artery disease, we have to think that the prevalence of carotid stenosis in the general population is very low. Okay. So recently there is a population uh, database analysis on over 3 million subjects from the U.S., showing that uh, the prevalence of carotid disease uh, was as low as 4%. So obviously there is no interest in screening the general population for carotid disease. So we should focus on subgroups that may have an increased prevalence of this condition. I see. And these are, for example, patients with lower extremity arterial disease, and especially those with multi-site arterial disease, meaning diseased coronary artery and diseased lower extremity. We know these patients have an increased prevalence of carotid disease, so this may be a target of screening. And in terms of um, once you've identified, let's say, a high-risk population of patients, uh, what is the role of imaging and perhaps what is the imaging uh, test of choice? Yes, imaging is a, plays a very important role in the assessment of patients with uh, carotid uh, disease. The uh, most frequently used uh, diagnostic tool is, uh, is a duplex ultrasound. So this allows very easily in a non-invasive way to detect carotid stenosis and also to assess the degree of stenosis by measuring on one hand the degree of stenosis by direct visualization and also by assessing the velocities across the stenosis. This allows us a first assessment of this condition. Then it depends whether patients have symptomatic or asymptomatic carotid disease. Symptomatic carotid disease being defined as having symptoms from this carotid, PIA or stroke, in the preceding six months. So if the patient has a symptomatic carotid stenosis, it presents with a TIA or stroke, clearly in addition to duplex ultrasound, brain imaging is mandatory, either with CT or MR. In the same setting of the brain imaging, supraortic vessel and the carotids should be imaged as well. So with CTA, CT angiography, or MR angiography, MRA. This is for symptomatic patient. For asymptomatic patient, again, the diagnosis is usually made with duplex ultrasound. But if the patient may be candidate for risk vascularization, assuming as a severe stenosis, for example, then CTA or MRA should be uh, added in order to 
adequately estimate the degree of uh, carotid stenosis. In addition, this brain imaging may allow us to find silent uh, ischemic lesion, which may be a parameter of increased risk uh, for this carotid. And then in, in patients with, uh, uh, we also like with imaging to detect patients that may be a higher risk for stroke, even if they are asymptomatic. This may include transcranial Doppler to see the hemodynamic relevance of the lesion and the degree of collateralization within the brain. And this may allow us also to see embolic signals uh, arising from the carotid, the so-called HIPs. A very recent uh, imaging modality that's been increasingly used in our center is uh, magnetic resonance imaging of the plaque, looking for plaque hemorrhage, which we know is increased with uh, higher incidence of stroke. I understand. So you, um, just to recap, a duplex ultrasound is definitely the most widely available and a, a really good first-line test, but then you try to get more information using either CT or MR, uh, not, only yes, of the, for... not, not only of the plaque, but also of the brain as well to look for uh, yeah. previous infarctions. I see. Okay. This is correct, especially for patients you might think they are a candidate for revascularization. If you have just a 50% lesion in duplex ultrasound, there is no need for further imaging. This patient should be simply uh, follow up with uh, duplex. And let's say we do identify a uh, significant uh, lesion. Um, what do the current guidelines tell us about when we should be choosing uh, carotid artery endarterectomy using surgery versus uh, stenting? Yes, this obviously is a very, let's say, also controversial uh, issue, eh? when to choose one or the other. So uh, I would say that the most important thing is, first of all, the decision of carotid revascularization should be multidisciplinary and always involve a neurologist. Sometimes it's very difficult to say if a transient neurologic symptoms is of carotid origin or not. So uh, a neurologist should always be on board. Now, in center experience with both procedure, carotid endarterectomy and carotid artery stenting, in my opinion, the decision should be based in each individual patient based on the risk condition for the two procedures. So let's say for carotid endarterectomy, what increases the risk are mainly comorbidities. In particular, advanced cardiac disease, as well also as local neck condition, the so-called hostile neck. For example, patients that uh, have had uh, previous radiotherapy in the neck or previous carotid surgery, or patients that have contralateral carotid occlusion, we know those patients are at increased risk for carotid endarterectomy. With respect to stenting, the anatomy of the aortic arch and the supraortic vessel is the most important parameter. So if the patient has the very steep aortic arch, the so-called type 3 aortic arch, or excessive tortuosity or disease of the supraortic trunks, we know this anatomy is unfavorable for carotid stenting, and so the patient should go uh, more for surgery. I'm sure uh, you know that uh, you are interested to know uh, what do the randomized uh, trial telling us? Indeed, for sure, and, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, this is. Actually, let's say that there were seven randomized trials over the years. 
that have randomized more than 300 patients uh, to carotid artery stenting or surgery. These are for people who know them, Caratas, Sapphire, Eva3S, Space, ICSS, Crest, and ACT1. Okay. So it is important to know that for the primary endpoint of the trial, it obviously different among the trials, in six of the seven trials, there was no difference in the primary endpoint between stenting and surgery, with the exception of EVA3S that favors surgery. Nevertheless, we have to say that there are some differences in outcomes between the two different uh, treatment modalities. Although, again, the primary endpoint and the vast majority of uh, trials did not differ. These are the following. In the periprocedural phase, uh, within 30 days, carotid artery stenting in the trials has been associated with more minor stroke than surgery. Conversely, surgery has been associated with more myocardial infarction and more cranial nerve pulses. On the long term, there is no difference in long-term disability, in prevention of ipsilateral stroke, in risk stenosis or need for repeat revascularization between the two strategies. Actually, both give excellent durability on the long run. That's very interesting data. Um, and have those trial results found their way into the, into the recent ESC guidelines, or are these guidelines in the process of being updated, do you know? Exactly. So first of all, I, I must say that especially the European studies, uh, which are EVA3S, SPACE, and ICSS, have been uh, heavily criticized for the limited endovascular expertise of operator enrolling in the trials. Okay. So you have to uh, think that actually the criteria of enrollment for uh, operators in their trials was as few as 10, 10 carotid artery stenting procedure performed in the lifetime of the operator. So extreme, know, extremely limited experience, just 10, 10 studies. Okay, wow. 10 carotid artery stenting performed before being able to enroll a patient in a randomized trial. Okay. And actually, we know that in the two-thirds of the patients that were treated by a stenting in uh, these three uh, European studies, were treated by operators with a lifetime experience of 37 carotid stenting or less at the time of the procedure. So you see that clearly, at least in the European studies, uh, the endovascular expertise of the operator was limited. Mm, indeed. Yeah, and so obviously the, the patient may have been exposed to a twofold risk. First, obviously, insufficient skills, and so more catheter manipulation, more risk of embolization and of ischemic event. And second, also the, uh, let's say, the patient with unfavorable anatomy may also be included in the trials that actually maybe an experienced operator would have excluded. So at the moment, it's still, even with the, um, the seven randomized trials that are very nicely laid out in your review, uh, there is still some criticism of those European studies, is what you're saying. Indeed. But with respect, you asked me before, with what is the current uh, position of, of the guidelines? So uh, the ESC, uh, the guidelines, the European Guidelines of European Society of Cardiology, 
actually in 2011, and I had the pleasure to be a member of this task force, uh, gave uh, clearly some uh, recommendations. So again, this is 2011, and we plan actually a new edition of the guidelines in association with the European Society of Cardiovascular Surgery for 2017. Okay. So with respect to the 2011 guidelines, what can we say? So uh, for asymptomatic patients, uh, the guidelines tell us that uh, endarterectomy should be considered for stenosis greater than 60% if the death or stroke risk is estimated to be less than 3% and the life expectancy exceeds five years. So the patient should not be too old. They have to, in order to benefit from revascularization in asymptomatic patients, they, they need a life expectancy of at least five years. Okay. So surgery should be considered. With respect to stenting, the degree of recommendation was lower, and they say stenting may be considered. So the class 2B in opposition to a 2A for surgery, again, in patients with an estimated risk than 3% and is experienced centers. So this for asymptomatic patients. For symptomatic patient, the guidelines uh, gave us a class one indication, so a very strong indication for surgery for symptomatic stenosis greater than 70%, and somehow lower um, degree of recommendation 2A for stenosis greater than 50%. With respect to stenting, they gave also a 2A indication, means should be considered stenting for high surgical risk patient, and for uh, standard surgical risk, they gave us a 2B, may be considered. So we can say that overall, current guidelines, again, it was 2011, give a strong recommendation, stronger recommendation for endarterectomy uh, with, compared with stenting for both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. Perfect. That's a really great summary, uh, Professor Roffey. And um, for people who are interested in looking at the uh, detail, the paper is now live on the Heart website. And I want to thank you and your co-authors uh, for joining me on this episode of the Heart podcast. Many thanks indeed. It is my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you.